0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series, in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Hello, I'm James Conlon, the Richard Seaver Music Director of Los Angeles Opera. While we are going through this challenging time together, we would love to stay in touch with you. Music is healing and inspiring. As we search for ways to grapple with the difficulties that face us, one of the best ways to be uplifted is through classical music, and especially through opera. To that end, I invite you to join me for a mini-series of talks here as part of LA Opera's regular Behind the Curtain podcast series. These three sessions will be similar to my pre-performance talks, but with more time, to expand and explore more deeply the complexities, nuances, and stunning emotionality of Claude Debussy's Peleas and Melisande. I am eager to share my thoughts and feelings about this opera, which is surely one of my desert island favorites, hoping that it will become one of yours. And this time, I won't have to run down to the orchestra pit and you don't have to rush to your seat. Thanks for joining us And enjoy. Claire de Lune, Claude Debussy, probably one of the most popular pieces for piano, played by many, heard by millions. Everybody knows it and I think loves it. So I'm going to be talking about Pellias and Mélisande, Debussy's only opera. And why have I decided to do this, get on air very early, not just making you wait for the performance and hearing a pre-performance talk, which I hope you'll all come to, of course. Because I love this opera so much, I couldn't contain myself. So I started making, preparing everything in January so that we could have it up online for you to get a good start in familiarizing yourself with this opera in case you don't know it. And if you don't know it, you're in a majority. Now, it is an opera that has always posed certain problems to opera lovers, and I will show you why very shortly. Now, is it really a problem? No. For those of us who love it, the piece is so magnificently beautiful, I consider it certainly one of my Desert Island pieces and one of the five or six greatest singular works, not just in the operatic repertory, but in any repertory. And so I offer it to you. So for people who love Peleas and Melisande and for conductors who have the privilege, the great luck to conduct it from time to time, uh, it becomes one of the great obsessive works that's to say, while you're working on it, while you're studying it, while you're rehearsing it, while you're performing it, you really can't think about anything else. In fact, I consider it addictive. Now, there's another composer that comes to mind when we talk about musical addiction, and that's Richard Wagner. Now, that what happens with Richard Wagner for me is you get into that world, you don't want to hear any great composers like Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms and other people you love just for that period of time. Now, not every composer uh, has that particular characteristic. Let's see if it's a quality or just a characteristic. Uh, I mean, if I'm listening to Beethoven, I'm just as happy then to his, listen to Mozart or Schubert right afterwards. But when the Wagnerian uh, aura comes over you, you can't do anything else. You're sort of stuck. You're there. And Peleas is exactly the same, except there's only one of them. Wagner wrote uh, by various counts, 10 operas, maybe 13. And when you're into them... You're into them. And then you can go from one to the other, sort of. Peleas and melisande there's only one. Now, I want you to become obsessed. I want you to become addicted. And I promise you, there is no harm from this addiction. There is only an enriching experience that is a mysterious experience and never ends. Now Why does it not end? Uh, because part of the story, part of the music, is all about mystery. And so you read it, hear it, listen to it, watch it like a novel, trying to figure out the characters, trying to figure out—the storyline is simple, you'll get it, but trying to figure out what does it mean and what are all those feelings? There is no way that you ever come to the bottom of that well. You're always going to be going down there. And so I started when I was 18 and I'm still at it at my age. Claude Debussy is, from my mind, perhaps the greatest French composer, certainly of his period, and certainly in his way, the most influential. It took him a long time to find an operatic subject that he actually saw through to the end. And so consequently, he only finished one opera. He's like Beethoven, who only wrote Fidelio. He worked on it for a very long time, perfecting it, changing it, searching for more. But he could only write one. He had found, and it took him a long time to find, the perfect work for him to set to music. And it was, by no surprise, called Peleas and Melisande by the Belgian writer, poet, Maurice Maeterlinck. Now, by an incredible coincidence, Debussy was born on August the 22nd, 1862. Maurice uh, Maeterlinck was born on August the 29th, 1862. They were born one week apart. Debussy in a suburb of Paris, Maeterlinck in the Belgian city of Ghent, and they didn't know each other. They had no contact with each other until after Debussy read the play, decided that was the play he wanted to turn into an opera, and then he went to ask permission. Now, I don't know what would have happened if Maitrelink had refused it because he had already started writing the music. But Maitrelink said, fine. And so he took the play and literally wrote an opera to the text. He made some cuts. It's a little shorter than the play. Uh, But that... May seem like a perfectly normal thing to do, but it wasn't a perfectly normal thing to do at the time. In fact, for centuries, there were so-called poets or librettists whose job it was to make right librettos for composers and turn them into operas. Wagner... Nobody was good enough for him, so he was his own librettist, and he was his own composer, and his own designer. He did it all. And then there's started to be a little bit of a tendency around the turn of the century for people to want to be the next Wagner. But it was basically Debussy who took the idea to take a text and write exactly to that text. Now, Soon afterwards, Richard Strauss, always on top of everything, realized that you could do that. He took Oscar Wilde's text of Salome and wrote an opera. And then soon after that, Alexander Zemlinsky uh, found another work of Oscar Wilde, uh, A Florentine Tragedy, and he did the same thing. And then Alban Berg took Wozzeck by Brieschner, and he did the same thing. So no big deal now. But it was a big deal when Debussy very quietly did it. And it, we have to remember that Debussy was not recognized yet as the great composer we now know he was. He was still uh, struggling like most composers were at the time. So you get this simplest poet, playwright, and essay writer who was Belgian. He was born, wrote in French. He was also a Nobel Prize winner in literature in 1911. He wrote a study of the life of bees. He was also a a pseudoscientist. And he was most of all a mystic, a real one. And so he brings all of that into this great work and then 1893 to 1895 most of the composing went took place could you see but he still kept fiddling with it changing it revising it and he couldn't get anybody to produce it and so it didn't get produced until its premiere was in Paris at the Opéra Comique though there's nothing funny about Pelléas et Mélisande on April the 30th, 1902, a full decade. Let's say it took a decade from birth to uh, to being able to be performed in the opera house. Now, what makes Peléas so different? Uh, And why do audiences not know if they like it? I mean, opera audiences. Because I think that this is an opera... It's not. I should stop saying that. It's not an opera. It is a piece of musical theater which has a great appeal to people who also love piano music by Debussy, songs by Debussy, chamber music by Debussy, and most of all, the orchestral works. The tradition of opera, as we know, uh, has been said. Opera was born in Italy, migrated to France, to Germany, to what is now Austria... It was all about beautiful singing, bel canto. You've heard the term. Long melodies, high notes, flexibility. It's called coloratura. It's all about the beauty of the voice, and who sings high notes very well is considered already a treasure in the opera house. Now, that's the first point. Debussy had no interest in writing in that style. He wanted to write a work where the people sang the language the way they spoke it. In other words, French is going to be set in his music in a way that does not elongate notes. There are no concessions to vocalism. It's all about the text. So the opera, born in Italy... And described by Carolyn Abate and Roger Parker in their marvelous history of opera, before they summed it up at the end, they said, that's it. That's opera. Just a lot of people in costumes falling in love and dying. Now, there's another famous quote, George Bernard Shaw, which I will paraphrase. He says, an Italian opera is the soprano wants to make love to the tenor. The tenor wants to make love to the soprano and the baritone doesn't want to let them. That's a formula, but it's a formula that was practiced over and over and over again. And if there was a low male voice, a bass, uh, he was often an older man, a king, uh, a wicked man could be, a judge, a czar, a pope. But the lovers were the soprano and the tenor. Now, we're going to see how, on the one hand, Debussy was revolutionary and changing everything at the same time, he's going to start with that basic formula because it's going to be about a young man and a young woman who fall in love and there's going to be a baritone who's in the way. More on that coming up. I should add at this point or any point that one could talk about all the aspects of Peleos and Melisande and it would take, you'd have to go on retreat at least for a weekend or maybe three or four days. So I'm not going to attempt to do any of that right now in this podcast. I'm going to be emphasizing one or two aspects uh, just to make a point. Why this opera is an atypical opera and why it is that some audience members say, well, wait a minute, there were no arias, there were no high notes, uh, there were no duets. Uh, I feel a little bit strange. I come here and that's what I expect. Well, this is a very different experience, and it's, a, it's almost like a mystical experience. So now you know Claire de Lune. Listen to this, which is just a small excerpt from the end of the opera, the last phrase of the opera, and you'll get a picture of the aesthetic. mesmerizing. Now, that kind of atmosphere, that kind of spirit let's listen to another just a small moment from La Mer, which of course is one of Debussy's great pieces for orchestra. You get the same kind of color so that if you know La Mer you'll find yourself in familiar waters, can I say that? This is the Debussy we are familiar with. And this is what you can expect from the orchestra when you come to hear Peleas and Melisande. Here's another piece you know very well. Prelude to the Afternoon of a Faun. A piece that caused a scandal when it was premiered. The critics dismissed it and it proceeded to become a staple of every concert, repertory, orchestra all over the world. This beautiful, it's a new color. That's what shocked at the time. This is the color of the orchestra of Pellias and Melisande. This is what you can expect. So you may not get your high notes, but you're going to get a lot of this gorgeous music. Now here's another side of Debussy. Walks Cakewalk. And here another type of example of the many preludes for piano. Here's a very beautiful one. And here's another one. This is called la cathedrale engloutie, the engulfed or submerged cathedral. Debussy wanted the form to come out of the feeling or spirit of a piece. Words, he thought, for instance, that the classical symphony was obsolete. So he never wrote a symphony. He, every orchestra piece he wrote started with an idea, an aesthetic, a feeling, uh, a color, and he worked from the feeling outward, and that made the form. Well, he did the same thing with this opera. The only being difference being is that Pelleas and Mélisande was a play in five acts. Why in five acts? Because every play in French literature over 300 years was in five acts. And so is the opera. That's the only form, however, it has. The music is written continuously. It never stops. And that is, of course, one of the Wagnerian, uh, part of the Wagnerian revolution. Now, before I go any further, I do have to talk about Wagner. For those of you who love Wagner, please don't be offended by what I'm going to be saying. For those of you who don't like Wagner, well, first of all, I wish you did. And uh, well, Debussy, like most young artists, was totally mesmerized by Wagner and the power of the new ideas that he had brought into the world. Wagner influenced every discipline, not just music. Music, opera, orchestra, harmony, poetry, theater, and much more. So Debussy was not unlike anybody else. He was fascinated with that. And then, as many young men do, after they got finished with that, then they rejected their fathers, so to speak. And so he will spend a lot of his time expressing ideas which are anti-Wagnerian, but he could not get out from underneath the amazing power and shadow of Wagner's influence. More on that as time goes on. Now, one of those things he, of course, did, he wrote he wrote these scenes or acts that never stop. They're all connected. Let's ask ourselves, what are the things that are different about *Peleas* and Melisande, and where did they come from? Did they come from Wagner? Were they Debussy's own ideas? Were there other influences? Well, one of the things is that you, there should be no long-held notes. Debussy, at one point, wrote an article why I wrote Peleas. I'm going to quote from it because I think it's interesting. The drama of Peleas, which, despite its atmosphere of dreams, contains much more humanity than so-called real-life documents. It seemed to suit my intention admirably. It has an evocative language whose sensitivity could find its extension in music and in orchestral setting. You see, that's important. He speaks right away of the importance of the orchestra. Now, what came with that? Well, Debussy wrote in 1901 that's a year before the premiere, music has a rhythm whose secret force shapes the development. The impulses of the soul, however, have quite a different rhythm, more instinctively general and controlled by many events. From the incompatibility of these two rhythms, a perpetual conflict arises. The two do not move at the same speed. Either the music gets out of breath by chasing after the character, or the character sits on a note to allow the music to catch up with it, So what is Debussy he saying? He's saying that when you artificially place a form on the text, you are setting up a conflict where either the text means less or the form is compromised. So what he's saying is you can't really put these two things together. And interestingly enough, Arnold Schoenberg expressed the same idea when he wrote that, and I'm paraphrasing, very, very good poetry doesn't set itself so well to good songwriting whereas weaker poetry seems to make better songs and he gives us examples now why would that be in his opinion because the s- strength of gr- of great poetry has a a weight a construction a power that can easily overwhelm the music what makes a logical poetic phrase has its own laws what makes a logical musical phrase has its own laws, and they are mostly in conflict with one another. Schoenberg's idea was that weaker poetry makes that easier because you can superimpose the musical laws on the uh, poetic laws. Debussy has recognized this same conflict, uh, and he is going to walk a fine line, but mostly on the side of the text, But his genius is in setting the text in such a way that it seems to be the natural way to speak, but he surrounds it with quote-unquote music, which is emanating from the orchestra, which tells a story, tells a different story, puts another emphasis on what the words that are being used are, asks us questions, opens up a universe, shows us darkness and light, all of that around the text. Now, he didn't like long held notes, because why? Well, we don't speak that way. I'm not going to say a word and hold it like that. So that for him, that's unnatural. So he doesn't like Italian arias where somebody holds a long note. It should always be approximately the length of the spoken word. He rarely allows two characters to sing together, sing at the same time, or overlap. Now, you'll have two characters. They'll be in a scene with each other, but one will sing or speak, and then the other one will sing or speak. Rarely do they overlap, and only when it means something, when Peleus and Melison are expressing passionately their love for each other, but you have to wait to act four for that to happen. This is a Wagnerian concept. Wagner wrote, although he didn't always practice what he wrote, he tended to write, one character sings, the other one sings back to that character. And even something that's a duet is rare, especially in the later operas, that both are singing at the same time. So that he did take from Wagner. I took another idea from Wagner who wrote, he didn't like the chorus singing too much because it didn't make sense with his dramas. Now he wrote that, but then of course, he wrote some absolutely great, opera's full of choruses, especially the early ones. He developed that idea as time went on, but The Flying Dutchman has great choruses. Tannhauser has the famous Pilgrim's Chorus. Uh, Lohengrin has choral music from beginning to end. Meistersinger has great choral moments. Parsifal has a little bit less. The Ring, zero. Told the end of the ring, the last part, Dico de Demeron has one scene that's a chorus scene. So he was ambivalent about the use of the chorus. So Wagner, when the form made sense, when the dramatic form made sense, he'd use a chorus and when it didn't, he would speak against it. Now, Debussy didn't want the chorus really participating and so there is only one brief excerpt where we hear a chorus, we do not see them and it's only a color and they have no words. The chorus in peleas only sings in one scene in Act One, and it's a pictorial effect of the sailors leaving on an unseen boat, which had brought Melisande to live in this new place. Now, both Wagner and Debussy wrote continuous music. It's called through-composed music. It means it never stops. There are no so-called closed forms where you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's all based on the scene or the act, The next point, Debussy is going to liberate himself even from Wagner. He doesn't want the voice being raised into the upper extremes except for moments of great intensity, intense emotion, love, passion, anger, violence. The normal discourse is in the middle register because that's where we speak. We only shout when there's a reason to shout. And Debussy felt all these operas, all these people are shouting all the time at the top of their lungs on these very high notes. It doesn't correspond with reality. And so he creates a language that is based on the delivery of the text in French as one would speak it with small inflections. Now, this was not his idea to begin with. The the actual other great influence was not talked about a lot in terms of Debussy, is Modis mussorgsky the great 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 russian composer who wanted to do the same thing he wanted his music his operas his songs to reflect the spoken russian language and he broke away with everything that had preceded him now mussorgsky was already dead 10 years before Pelias was written but there's no question that Debussy knew the score very well, and he refers to Mussorgsky in several of his writings, complimenting him. The greatest compliment, of course, is that he took the concepts of Mussorgsky and he applied them to French music. Now, he took something else from Mussorgsky, and that is the use of the arioso. What's the arioso? Arioso is a form of singing which is halfway between what we call recitative which is basically all about the text and arias or songs where the melody is the main point and the raising of the voice is the main point so arioso is right in the middle of that and musoksky used this style extensively where there would be a melody but only one that could go very quickly back to recitative or could be intensified and turned into long melody. Debussy digested this idea from Mussorgsky, and he will use it. It's like a jandice head that can turn in either direction. Arioso turns one second into more recitative, almost spoken text, and then can turn its head the other way and turn into melody. And Debussy will do it with such fluidity that it becomes a part of the amazing art. So Debussy's scenes are non-symmetric. There's a freedom of form. No structure, as it would seem. Now I'm going to challenge you. We're going to hear why this opera is so different from most other operas and why it's so surprising. And why, if for anything, people who were great opera aficionados were always left a little quizzical. Here is Peleas finally telling Melisande that he loves her. Je t'aime. And she answers, je t'aime aussi, I love you also. But listen to the way they do that. You can barely hear her. And he can't hear her. He says, que tu dis, What did you say? Here's a Verdian tenor and soprano expressing the same thing in Italian, Tabo, I Love You. Now, that's Italian for I Love You. Let's try another one. Here's German for I Love You. This is Siegfried and Brunhilde after five hours. Mozart characters tell they love each other. They do it in the same elegant, classical way that characterizes all of Mozart's music. Gentle, elegant, they sing together, which, of course, we know Debussy didn't want. So what was the world of French opera like when Debussy was in his formative years? Here's another Je T'aime, Samson and Delilah by Saint-Saëns. So, you see, it's important to say it at the top of your lungs, but not to Debussy. Here's a reminder of what you're going to hear. Coloratura, ornamentation, vocal displays of agility and virtuosity, basic to much of the 19th century Italian music, even before, of course, from the time of Handel, Debussy is having none of it. No displays of vocalism. Not interested, not at all. So, for instance, Verdi, the so called Cabaletta from La Traviata, this is all about agility and showing your ability to sing rapidly. That, of course, is Maria Callas. Here she is in a French opera which is based on the Italian forms. It's Gounod's Romeo and Juliet. Same thing again. All about flexibility. Debussy doesn't want choruses around. Here's a magnificent chorus, but he didn't want one. This is Samson and Delilah again. These are the Hebrews singing to their god. Or Gounod again, Faust this time. Here's the soldiers' chorus. No interest on Debussy's part. He is rebelling against all of this. Here's another thing. French opera was actually born out of the dance, out of ballet, And so dance and ballet was always a must in every French opera right up until the time of Debussy. Here, for instance, is Gounod's Faust again, although it is said that he didn't write the ballet. Once again, Samson and Delilah, here's the famous Bacchanal, which has made its way into the concert world. Now, that's the world of French opera, into which Debussy is born and developed. Now, he's going to change all of that. He's rejected all of that. He's going to be attracted to the model of mystical music so he's got to go to Wagner and to Parsifal Mysticism This is the Holy Grail But this kind of slow mesmerizing music is Debussy's model It's like transcendental meditation. This is the form that Debussy is more attracted to. I shouldn't say it's the form. It's the aesthetic that he is attracted to and the mysticism. In choosing Maeterlinck he's chosen a mystical work. Parsifal was the inspiration and model for much of Debussy's music. Even more so for Pelleas and Mélisande, the influence of Wagner's great Tristan and Isolde can be seen in in the cracks. Here is Tristan and Isolde. This is the principal motive. And here's the Tristan chord, which revolutionized harmony in the Western world. The opera is dedicated to the expression endless yearning. Never to be fully satisfied, this appeals to Debussy. Listen to this magical moment from the second act. Tristan and Isolde are in the dark, expressing their love freely. And the companion of Isolde, Brangena, watches out to be sure that nobody comes and discovers them. That aesthetic passes into Debussy. This is from the first nocturne for orchestra. It was called Nuage, Clouds. Now, I'm going to interrupt and leave you hanging. We'll see each other the next time. This is James Conlon, music director of Los Angeles Opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Operas Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.